Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Well, I have to admit, when Colleen first said she wanted to go see a movie called Little Miss Sunshine, I was like, no way. Uh, you know, just the title, Little Miss Sunshine, just screams in big neon lights, chick flick. <laughs> uh, but it was her turn to choose. We kind of alternate back and forth in our, in our family. And, you know, I'm like, come on, Buckets of Blood 3. Uh, you know, and she's like, Legally Blonde 6. But she won on this one. And so we go to see Little Miss Sunshine, which I read on the way. I'm reading about it. It's like it's about this little girl's quest to be in a beauty pageant. And I'm like ready for a groaner. I'm like, oh. But I have to admit, 90 minutes in, it had won me over. I totally misjudged the movie. Uh, your classic don't judge a book by its cover scenario. How many of you have seen it? Uh, maybe you've seen Little Miss Sunshine. Okay, good swath of you. Although it appears very cute on the outside, it's actually very candid and somewhat coarse at times. Um, it's not like a saccharine sweep, but it actually exposes in a most poignant and sometimes disturbing, sometimes comical way, the harsh realities and disappointments that come with living in a fallen world. Now, the movie, for those of you who need a refresher, tells the story of the Hoovers, okay? One of the most endearingly dysfunctional families ever seen on motion picture screens. They, like, put the D in dysfunction, Ramalama Ding Dong. <laughs> it's, it's a motley family of six members who make this trek from Albuquerque to the Little Miss Sunshine pageant in Redondo Beach, California, in this broken-down Volkswagen uh, bus that's pretty much kind of a metaphor, you know, for their family life. Um, it, it, it's driven by the, rich, uh, by the father, Richard. You see him there on the right-hand side? He's like this self-help guru. He's got, like, this nine-step dress-for-success motivational program, and the only problem is he's a total failure, <laughs> He can't get anybody to buy it. And his wife Cheryl is this frazzled, you know, uh, working mom who's trying to hold everyone and everything together. And the tensions are just heightened by the grandfather. You guys see this guy played by Alan Arkin. I think he won like the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. He's not in this picture because, well, I don't want to give it away what happens to him. Um, But he was kicked out of the retirement home that he was living in Sunset Manor for snorting heroin. So he's along in the bus for the ride. And also in the backseat, the yellow minivan is Uncle Frank, Steve Carell, Cheryl's brother, who's a gay professor just released from a hospital following a suicide attempt caused by his lover abandoning him for a rival Proust scholar, okay? Now, the only one you see in the middle, uh, Dwayne, the sullen son, who's not speaking. <laughs> he doesn't speak to anyone. He reads Frederick Nietzsche, and he wears this yellow T-shirt that says Jesus was wrong throughout the movie. And he just kind of broods in the back seat of the family van, not saying a word, but shooting like laser beams into the back of his parents' heads. Sound familiar? Anyone have, have teenagers? Any parents of teenagers here, right? The only one with a bright spot, the only ray of sunshine in this fractured family is Olive. <laughs> Right, this little moppet of a girl who's obsessed with beauty pageants in spite of being a pretty, pretty plain kind of ragamuffin kid. And she's the only one who gets, she gets everyone together in the family van for this ill-fated road trip to California for the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. And you've seen the, the yellow Volkswagen bus everywhere. It's on the cover of our programs. And it's more than just like this running joke in the movie. You know, the clutch burns out. So whenever the family starts the van, they all have to get out and kind of push this thing and get the thing going. And once it's going, they can't slow down. So they kind of each got to jump on. And throughout the movie, you know, the horn, like it gets stuck. It just kind of whines weakly as they go down the highway. The door is broken. It's falling off. And you realize it's more than a sight gag. It's a metaphor for their family. (laughs) Their relationships are a mess. It just keeps getting worse. And nobody has the time or ability to fix it. 
How the families managed to stay together so long is hard to imagine. It just keeps rolling along in spite of everything wrong with it. And, and, and throughout the film, the various dreams of the family members are destroyed. Richard's book deal falls through. Frank's career as well as his relationship. Dwayne's future. Grandpa, actually, um, he actually ODs on the way to the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. And one by one, their hopes fall by the wayside. It may be one of the reasons they're so intent on getting Olive to the contest so she can at least have her dream. And of course, you know, <laughs> that's doomed. But I won't give away the ending scene. Uh, you, get, you remember the ending scene? You got to see that kind of redeems the movie. But this family is deeply dysfunctional. Now, question. Anyone here have a friend that comes from a dysfunctional family? Yeah, a few. Okay, yeah, yeah. Not you. A friend, right? (laughs) What I want to talk today a little bit about family relationships. Because each of us is in a family, whether you're a parent or not. You know, we each travel in a tribe that serves as our family. Some it's a a literal biological family. Maybe you've got brothers, sisters, parents. That's challenging. Or maybe you're a part of of our church family. This is your spiritual home. And you've discovered something uh, secret here, too. That actually the church is full of a few imperfect people. (laughs) And that dysfunction isn't just the domain of the previous generation, but actually it's a normative part of everyday relationships between human beings. It's funny, on a trip to California, I actually saw a bumper sticker that read, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. You ever, ever see this one? Now, I'm not a guy for big you know, bumper stickers, but I kind of like that. Because you spend any time in a church, no matter how happy or shiny people may act on the outside, you learn pretty quickly enough, Christians are not perfect. But we are forgiven. That is what bonds us together in this room is that many of us have placed our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and our brokenness. All the flaws and failings that we bring to the table, we've actually owned those and acknowledged all the ways that we fall short of God's design for our lives. And we've asked God not only for forgiveness, but also to teach us a new way to live. Because Jesus came to give a a new life that was meant to be lived God's way. And that's really what the church is. A collection of formerly broken people who are on the men. People who've sinned, who've been sinned against and are getting a (laughs) do-over. A second shot through the gift of Jesus Christ at living together in the kind of love and harmony that God designed us for. And and that's really our ray of sunshine or hope too, that in the midst of those flaws, we actually now have something in us. The Spirit of God that enables us to do something we previously never could do. And that is love and forgive one another. (laughs) Having received that from God, that love and forgiveness, we now have his spirit and the ability to do that horizontally. The church is really our second shot at what true family is supposed to be. You know, totally diverse, but we're united in the same father, harmonious, but not free of conflict, full of dysfunctional people, but accepting of all. And as we live in a new way, we come to re- with, our, with our hurts and our heartaches and display a harmony that the world is supposed to sit up and take notice of. At least that's how it works in theory, according to the Bible. So I want to talk about harmony and relationships today, and particularly how that kind of love and harmony can be cultivated in your primary relationship. So this has multiple applications, whatever those relationships are to you. I'm assuming you're a human being, you have at least one relationship. Could be within a family, maybe your husband or a wife, you're married here, you're like, yeah, here I am, she's over there, we're not talking. Um, or you're a kid, you got parents to relate to, you wish they disappear, or you're a parent and you're thinking your children, you're like, yeah, I've been in the bus. Uh, or you're dating someone, or you're in church, you're, you're, which all of us are here. You've got relationships with people. And the question is, how do you keep them from going south? Well, let's take a minute to anchor ourselves in Scripture Day. And I want to spend some time in the book of First Peter, First Peter 3.8. And Tommy, if we can get the lights here so that people can follow along. We printed the Scripture uh, in your, uh, on the seat there. We got a little pen there for you to follow along with. And First um, Peter 3.8 is just one verse. It's a foundational verse in which Peter calls the people of God to live differently 
than the dysfunction that typically characterizes our world. So let's read this out loud together. 1 Peter 3.8, in which God gives us these instructions. Ready? Let's read it together. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Great job. Now, this is a foundational verse in New Testament teaching. And although it's just one verse, it really provides this kind of four-pronged approach to cultivating grace-based relationships with imperfect people. You'll notice first that Peter gives this overarching right, general command to everyone. He's like, hey, all of you, wake up, live in harmony with one another. In other words, whether you're single or married, you're a seasoned Christ follower, or you're just starting your journey of faith, live in harmony. And you're like, hey, awesome, Peter. If only it were that easy. I mean, you know, take a look around this room. You go outside, look at creation, you'll be struck with one immutable fact. God loves diversity. We're all different. Not one of us is exactly alike. And God could have made us all alike, but he didn't. And that's funny. Because what's interesting to me is that although we're different, you ever notice how opposites often attract? Those of you who are married, you know, kind of know that. You You know, if you're married, before you got married, all you could see was how much you had in common with your partner. But after you got married, it's like a whole different ball game. All you can see is how different and disturbing that person is. You know, before marriage, opposites attract. After marriage, opposites attack. You know, all, all those things you overlooked or thought were so cute when you were dating really get on your nerves now. Yet God says to husbands and wives, to dating couples, to anyone with friends or meaningful relationships, I want you to get along anyway. I know I made you differently and sometimes it's not going to feel so great, but I want you to live in harmony with one another. And it's like, all right, I'll go with that. But how do we actually do that? Well, Peter actually follows four secrets. You see him here? He, he lists four attitudes as the core ingredients to cultivating a harmonious relationships. See how he says, all you live in harmony with one another. And then he puts a semicolon, meaning here's how you do it. And he cites four different challenges to each of us, four ingredients. Let's, let's read them together. The first is be sympathetic. Secondly, love as brothers. Thirdly, be compassionate. And finally, humble. And in many ways, these are the four God-given bulwarks against settling for lives of dysfunction. Because while we all may be familiar with dysfunctional relationships and many of us have survived them, you don't want to live there. It's not what you were actually made for, even though we see it all around us. As Christians, we were actually made by God to live lives of harmony with one another, which we're supposed to serve as a visible testimony to the rest of the world that people who God redeems are actually people that God can rehabilitate. It's possible to live in a new way. Under the power of God's spirit, with, with the spirit of Jesus in our hearts, we can become agents of positive living rather than dysfunction. How? Build these four in, says Peter. You're going to find new hope with your spouse, your children, your parents, your employers, your friends. No matter what the conflict or difference is, these four make all the difference. And the first is sympathy, right? Verse 8 says, be sympathetic. And it's like, all right, what, is, what, what does that mean? Well, to sympathize simply means to understand or validate or affirm someone's feelings, right? Pathos. You see the word, root word pathos in there. Not their ideas, but their feelings. And when you're sensitive to their feelings, you don't belittle them. You don't put them down. And you say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. When you validate someone else's feelings, you're being sympathetic. And, and this is a big deal for me as a parent. Okay. I'm just learning the secret. Uh, I've got a three-year-old little boy named Dell, and he is a delightful terror. That's the best way to describe him, the only way to describe him. He is very dramatic, you know. He's, he, he's either on 12 or he's on 2. Uh, there are no in-betweens. He's either like happy off the charts, you know, singing and dancing, bare necessities, you know. Or he's screaming and crying. <laughs> In many ways, three years old, he's just trying out his emotions. He's got feelings and they vacillate wildly based on his day. 
for instance, he's got a beloved ball collection. This is his thing, like super balls, balls of any size, wiffle balls, whatever. And he comes down in the morning in his, in, in, in his you know, little sleeper jammies, and he's clutching them already. It's like 7.30 a.m. He goes, I got my balls, you know? And, of course, he's got a big sister named Chase who's five years old who knows he can't possibly handle all of these balls there. And he's going to drop one. He drops one this week, and it is his beloved orange ball. And Chase reaches down and goes, I got your orange ball. And she rips out of the room. And you would have think she, he, she took a poker and stuck it in his eye. He's like, no. And, and whenever that happened, what I used to do, honestly, as, as, as a parent, I'd, I'd be like, Del, stop it. Stop, stop. Stop crying. It's not that bad. No big deal. Do, don't do that. And I can see it. seasoned parents are like, go Pastor Tim. Try to reason with a three-year-old. How's that working out for you? All right? You know what? Yeah. <laughs> I've learned it's not only futile, it's telling him the wrong thing. I mean, this may be no big deal to me, but you know what? A stolen orange ball is a major loss in his world. Big hit. And to tell him it's no big deal totally invalidates how he feels. Same thing. It's the opposite of sympathy. So now Colleen, she, Colleen, my wife is coachman. She's like, she's like, don't, don't tell him not to scream. I go, what do you want me to do? She's like, scream with him. And I'm like, okay, no, maybe not that. But you know what I do say? I go, oh, Del, I'm so, did you lose your orange ball? And it's so funny because he's, he, he's like, to have me say that to him. He's like, yeah. And, and I'm like, oh man, was it big? He said, the big orange one. And I'm like, come here. That must be so upsetting. And it was so weird because it totally threw him. I like hugged him. He's like, you must be so upset. And he's just like, I am, daddy. <laughs> you know what? That doesn't change a whole lot when we get older. <laughs> we all need sympathy because it meets two basic human needs. Everyone in this room has a need to be understood. You want somebody to understand you in life. And all of us have a need to feel like our feelings are okay. You want someone to validate them. Am I weird? Crazy? Does anybody else feel this way? And when you find somebody who is sympathetic with you, it not only says, I understand, but, but you know what? I may not feel that way, but I validate your feelings. This isn't a matter of right and wrong. And Peter's like, that's the first building block to harmonious relationships. Understand where the other person's coming from. Understand their perspective, their temperament, the circumstances that have shaped them. And when you do that, you're going to learn to be sympathetic. Well, how do I become sympathetic? Practically, James 1.19 says, be quick to, let's read the word together, listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. You do the first two, the third is an automatic. (laughs) Rick Warren, to whom I'm indebted for some insights in this message, he puts it this way. He says, use your ears more than your mouth. And that's hard for a guy like me. (laughs) Learn to listen. When you learn to listen, you automatically become sympathetic and tuned into the feelings of your mate or whomever. When you listen, you say, I care. When you listen, you're saying, you know what? You matter to me. You're valuable. What you're saying is valuable. I care about you. And that's one of the reasons we actually train our leaders at Liquid to be good listeners. We're not looking for great talkers or take the hill, but people who can sympathize and listen and cultivate a sympathetic spirit because you know what they say. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. One of the things that keeps Little Miss Sunshine from being a dark or bleak film is that throughout their trip across the Southwest in their beater VW van, there are poignant moments when love kind of breaks through. And in one scene, Dwayne, the sullen son, who's vowed ne- you know, never to speak, he learns he's colorblind. And, and that wouldn't be such a big deal, except the reason he took the vow sounds in the first place is that he set his sights on going to the Air Force Academy and flying jets and vowed not to speak until he reached his goal. And when Olive gives him a little eye test in the van that reveals he's colorblind, well, it's devastating. As adults, when we encounter a spouse or a child in pain, 
we're most often tempted to explain it away or, you know, try to minimize a hurt, but sometimes it takes a child to lead the way and show the power of true sympathy. Dwayne, I think you might be colorblind. You can't fly jets if you're colorblind. Dwayne, come on, we have we have to go. I'm not going. Dwayne. I said I'm not. Okay, I don't care, I'm not getting on that bus again. Dwayne, for better or worse, we're your family. No, you're not my family. Okay, I don't want to be your family. I hate you! Divorce? Bankrupt suicide? You losers! No, please just leave me here, Mom. Okay? Please, please, please. Please just leave me here. I don't know what to do. Well, it's getting late. Maybe can somebody stay here with them? I'll stay. Um, that is not happening. All right, well. Uh, I was worried about the time. Olive, you, uh, you want to try talking to him? Richard, no, there's nothing to say. We just have to wait. Honey.
You know, just that image of Olive tenderly going up to her brother, just resting her head on his shoulder in total silence, speaks volumes. Though she didn't say a word, she announced to her brother, I understand. This loss is crushing to you. You're hurting, and so I'm hurting. And I can sympathize, and I'll actually sit here with you and say nothing. And the effect it has on Duane is telling, you'll see in in a few minutes. But be sympathetic, says Peter. This is the first ingredient to relating to people in a life-giving and Christ-like way. How would, how would, let me put it to the movie of your life, your movie, your bus, what's going on in your bus, okay? How would you rate yourself on sympathy? In your notes today, you probably noticed we included a little chart. Now, we're not going to collect these, but we're going to ask you to be honest and do a little self-evaluation here, a scale of one to nine. How would you rate yourself on sympathy, Okay. Click your pen and think, now think about this. You put one through nine, not ten, because no one's a ten here, okay? In fact, better yet, especially those of you who are married, you don't do it. Have, have your spouse fill out yours. You know, if, you're, if, you're a hus- if you're, your spouse would say, hey, my husband or wife is always understanding, she, she's a great listener, give yourself a nine. <laughs> but if your spouse would say, you know what, he actually ignores my feelings and I think he sees me as a problem to fix, you get a one. <laughs> or if your spouse would say, you know, I think he actually makes fun of my feelings, uh, ridicules me at times. You get a negative 10. You just like go off the chart there, okay? The first building block of downsizing dysfunction, be sympathetic. Seek to understand before you seek to be understood. Is there a relationship right now in which you're having you know, some conflict? Maybe, maybe with your, you know, in your family, maybe at work, with a friend, maybe someone even in this room, you tried everything but sympathy? That's step number one, says Peter. Now, now the second ingredient for living in harmony with imperfect people is what we call brotherly love. And you'll notice this isn't just kind of any kind of love or affection. The Bible says love as brothers, which is kind of funny because I grew up with an older brother, and quite honestly, brotherly love often involved blood. <laughs> I remember this one time my brother was 15, I was 10, we're about five years apart, and, and he was like, you know, just in high school, all cool, and I was kind of his peon. And he would have his friends over, and they pretty much ignore me, you know, or beat on me or something. And this one time, my brother, he just like started, he started, you know, working out like he was in high school. He just started lifting weights freshman year. And I, and I guess he wanted to show his friends like how strong or tough he was. And he had them over, and he's like, hey, come on over. Come here, man. Go ahead. Watch this. Give me your best punch right here. Come on, bro. And I'm like, no, no, Ted, don't, no, come on. It's like, come on, man. What's wrong with you? Go ahead and do it right here, hard as you can. You know, I'm like 10 years old. So I was like, no, 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 no. Wham! And I cracked him right in the mouth. And the worst part was he had braces. Just had his teeth wired all that summer. And man, you know what they say, nothing bleeds like the mouth. (laughs) Not so good. Uh, Brotherly love. (laughs) Obviously, that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's not saying relate to each other like that. But don't brush past the analogy because there's something to it. He's saying, folks, whether you like it or not, you are related. Not by blood, not by money or work. I mean, that's how the majority of our relationships in this world are arranged and defined, right? By blood, like, well, biology, we're in the same field. Or economics, we work together. But the church is different. The church is the one organization in the world that's designed to operate like a family. I mean, that's the language that Jesus gave us to us to relate to one another as brothers, as sisters. And what we have in common runs much deeper than blood or money. In fact, what we have in common is spiritual bloodlines. The Bible says that each man or woman who puts his or her trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior becomes a spiritual member of God's family. And now we relate differently. Everything changes. We begin calling God our Father. 
Jesus is our faithful brother and we are no longer orphans. At the moment of our salvation, we're, the language Jesus uses, we are born again, literally born into a new kind of family, a spiritual one, in which every other believer who's trusting in Jesus for eternal life is now our spiritual sister or brother. Ephesians 2.19 tells us this. It says, you are a member of God's very own family and you belong in God's household with every other Christian. There's been a high price paid for that. Jesus Christ lays down his life to pay for your adoption into the family of God. And it's got nothing to do with anything that you did or chose, but God did it for you as a gift. Free gift, grace, God's kindness to those who don't deserve it. And when you enter that uh, family, spiritual family, our local church here in New Jersey is one outpost or pocket of that family. When you enter God's family, you enter into new relationships and with that come new responsibilities because we're now bonded for life. With the blood of Christ running through our veins, we have the same spirit in our hearts, and our, and our Father actually expects us to get along. <laughs> actually, more than that. <laughs> because we're now spiritually related, He doesn't just expect us to like one another. He actually expects us to love one another. And that requires honesty. We want to talk about dysfunction. I think it was about four years ago. I was going down to Pennsylvania to my parents' house for my father's retirement party. So we rolled up a couple minutes early, and my sister was there with her family. Uh, I had an opportunity to uh, sit down and talk with my sister prior to the retirement party. Well, as you well know, in family situations, sometimes those conversations don't go very well. Uh, Unfortunately, um, our conversation had something to do with the fact that I was pretty upset with my sister for the fact that for years I had hid the fact that she had sexually abused me as a child. And to be honest with you, uh, when that subject finally came up in that conversation, the last thing in my mind was the fact that my father was retiring. So here we are. We're the perfect Christian family. We roll into church, mom, dad, son, daughter, you know, 2.5 kids and a dog. That's us. And we roll in on Sunday morning and everything's fine. I spent a lot of years watching my parents carry on, you know, this front that we had it all together. Matter of fact, you talk to most of the families that knew us growing up and the ladies were a pretty good family. Good daughter, good kids, good son, great parents who love Jesus so much. It's amazing to me the dysfunction that I found out in the course of two hours that had told the tale of my life, but yet had been hidden so deeply for so many years as we sat, you know, in the front row in church and smiled and I carried my big Bible with the Bible protector on it. Uh, We had it all going uh, for us as the, the strong, typical Christian family. I think one of the things that uh, Tara and I have enjoyed the most about Liquid beyond the fact that I can wear my flip-flops to church and it not cause an issue or an uproar, um, is how free we actually feel to be ourselves. I feel like Liquid has really been the first place and we spent a lot of time in churches over our lives where we can be ourselves, that we don't have to hide behind the fact that uh, we have issues and problems, that yes, we've actually cursed in our house before, um, that we make mistakes and make poor choices, and that's okay. Um, the great thing is, is that we've been reminded time and time again at Liquid that we love and serve a God who meets us right where we're at. He loves us for who we are, 
imperfect and people that have made poor choices in our lives, but he loves us anyway. And a lot of the way he's done that has been through people. One of the funny things that we noticed going through this process was that while, my, while the biological family or our biological family was breaking down, it was our spiritual family that was actually building up. We had never experienced that before in our lives. And the very people that we had gone to for some of that spiritual support, uh, while that was breaking down, the people that were running alongside us, those very people that were in our spiritual family. Uh, and it's been a pretty big transition for us, an eye-opening experience. You know, sexual abuse is a pretty heavy subject. It's something, you know, like we were talking about last week, something kind of heavy to carry around in your backpack. And something I'm still working through with God. And I'm thankful for the fact uh, that I, I have Him to work through something so heavy like that with. Probably the biggest thing we realized is, although we're imperfect people, we serve a perfect God who loves us anyway. We thank Mike Leahy for sharing a little bit with us. He's one of our leaders here. Thanks, Mike, for that gift. You know, that's the power of, of spiritual family. In many ways, God designed your spiritual family to be as loving and caring and accepting, if not more so, than your biological one. Don't hear that wrong. Your biological family is important. But, but spiritual family is characterized by a love and a loyalty that transcends bloodlines. And that's why we start being authentic with one another, especially in church, which sadly is sometimes the last place you'd expect people to be honest and authentic. One of my close friends who doesn't go to church, and I've invited him to come multiple times. He's like, no thanks, no, no offense to him, but I've got enough posers in my life. And when I asked him what he, he meant, he said, well, church strikes him as a place that encourages people to pose. You know, to act a certain way, to kind of put on a religious mask, or act holier than thou, or, or that like we have, it, we have it all together far more than we, we actually do. Yet the reality is, there are no perfect people in God's family. If there were, we wouldn't need Jesus. <laughs> Remember, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. And so that means in a crowd this size of perfectly imperfect people, we're all carrying around the same stuff everyone else is out in the world. Eating disorders, addictions, sexual abuse, hurts and wounds, regrets for the ways that we've hurt and wounded others. But folks, the truth is, an authentic Christian community that's truly held together by the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, there's no safer place to be yourself to let your hair down, to let your guard down in, in this robe and be yourself. Why? Because we're family, spiritual family, and we're not going anywhere. Well, we are going somewhere. We're going to heaven. So this is like the training room. We better start getting along now because it's going to be a little bit longer ride. It's funny, on Monday mornings, um, we have this family ritual in my, our biological family. Chase sometimes stays home from school. I'm home from work. It's kind of like our Sabbath day. And we do whatever the kids want, which is pretty much iTunes dance party. They come down, they're like, get the iPod, you know, and put on the bare necessities, do, 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 you know. And, and, and the great thing is, you know, with three-year-olds, nobody showers or anything. No, come down right now. No time to get cleaned up. So we come down into our living room wearing whatever we went to bed in. So if you drove past my house on Monday morning, now don't do this. But if you drove past my house tomorrow morning and peered through our curtains, you would see me, honestly, now I don't want to make you stumble, but in my boxer shorts... Dancing around there. Colleen with her robe on, you know, Chase. Sometimes she's just like in her underwear, you know. No shame, no self-consciousness because we share a bond. Brotherly love. We're family. And the truth is we'll step on each other's toes while we dance. Be certain of that. But part of loyalty is accepting each other's mistakes and differences. 
Romans 15, 7 says, accept one another. How? Just as Christ accepted you. Would you circle that word accept? How did Christ accept us? As we were, broke down in our sins with faults and failings, powerless to change ourselves. Accepting one another that same way doesn't mean I approve of everything you do, but it means my love for you is actually not dependent on you changing. If you've been married any length of time, you figured out maybe already that there are a lot of things in your spouse that are probably never going to change. <laughs> and so if you say, you know what, I will love you if, forget it, that's not real love. <laughs> that's conditional love. Acceptance says, I've got faults, you've got faults, you, you know, but, but you're a good egg even if you are a little cracked. <laughs> we make allowances for each other. That's loyalty. We are all flaky sometimes. How, how many of you are prone to flaking out periodically? Yeah, oh, seven of you. Okay, yeah, great. Like every once in a while, you just lose it and fly off the handle. The truth is we all act like flakes depending on the time of day or the time of the week, or the time of the month, you know. Just let that pass over here. Just let that pass. Grace. All right, I can't resist. You, 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 I, I can only tell you this because one of my sisters here in our family said this. You know why it takes three women with PMS to change a light bulb? It just does. All right, that's it. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, someone said that to me at the first one. Romans 12.10 says this. It says, be devoted to one another. Look at that word devoted. It doesn't mean you agree on everything. You're not. It means you're loyal no matter what. We are in this together. Commitment. It means I may actually differ with you. I may be irritated with you. I may be angry and upset and totally disagreeing with what you think, but don't let there be any doubt. I am committed to this relationship. I'm not walking out no matter how bad it gets. When Colleen and I got married, we actually, we, we closed the escape shaft, we locked it, and we threw away the key. We said, you know what? Divorce is not going to be an option for us. We are going to make this thing work because we are making an eternal commitment to the relationship to say, I'm loyal to you, even when we get in, a, in an argument. Even, we sometimes say that, you know, we'll like, I'm like, I just want to reaffirm, I love you and I am totally committed to you, even though you are totally dead wrong. <laughs> But even say, we're on the same team. What are we fighting each other for? We're not enemies, but we do have a problem. We do have differences. Married folks, this is critical that you affirm your loyalty to each other, especially if you have kids, to affirm your loyalty to your mate in front of your kids. If your children see you arguing, they also need to see you resolve it so they don't think that these things just go on and on. You know, argument plants seeds of doubts in kids' mind about your commitment to each other, and you'll have some repair work to do. Remember, this one time Colleen had this huge blow-up. I can't even remember what it was over, but we, we started, you know, we started raising volume in the kitchen and everything. And, I, you know, I just, I was just like, I don't believe this. You, are you, you've got to be kidding. And I turned around, and there's my little girl Chase just standing there. You've had that moment. And I came in to work. I remember talking to Pastor Glenn. I was like, I just totally blew it. You know, Colleen and I, we just totally blew it right in front of the kids. And he's like, are you kidding me? Because this is awesome. I go, what? <laughs> thanks, Glenn. Uh, he goes, you have an unprecedented opportunity to actually show what true love and forgiveness is like to your children. He goes, you now go ask Colleen's forgiveness. I'm like, I already, I already did that. We made up. He's like, no, 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 no. You got to go back and do it in front of your kids. This is important, parents, particularly if your kids see you fight. You set them down and say, sometimes, here's the deal. I re- sometimes we really get upset with your mother. Sometimes she can get really upset with me, but don't let there be any doubt in your mind that we are committed to each other. Divorce is not an option with us. We do this every time we have a major argument. We say to our kids, you know what? Mommy and daddy are upset and we got a difference, but we're working it out. It has nothing to do with our loyalty. One of the major fears that kids have today is that their parents, you know, are are, are going to split. It's happening to all their friends. I have a friend whose parents have been married over 50 years, 50 years. And and he remembers asking his mom, mom, in all those years, did you ever think about getting divorced? And she she thought for a minute, she replied, divorce your father? No, never. Murder, yes. But divorce, no. (laughs) No. 
Folks, that's the second distinctive of true spiritual family. We love like brothers and have an eternal commitment that transcends temporary conflict. So rate yourself now. How would you say you're doing with brotherly love? With the kind of unconditional loyalty we're talking about here. Nine, you're unshakable, all right? Five, you're like, well, it depends on the conflict. Um, or one, you're like, hey, I, I, I walk out or I threaten to leave whenever there's a crisis. Where would you put yourself there, honestly? Just, I'm not going to collect these, you know. Now, the third secret to diffusing conflict in relationships is compassion. Peter kind of puts them in order there. And compassion is really simply defined as love in action. If sympathy is understanding someone's feelings, compassion demonstrates it in action. What can I do to help you? And there are really two ways, primarily, um, that we show compassion in relationships. The first is by what we say to other people. Ephesians 4.29 kind of coaches us, and it says, Speak what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Think about, your, does, does that characterize your speech? Words that build up each other. Or are you kind of the demo man or demo woman? Words, words that you kind of rip down or in your talk is typically a little more toxic, actually. Filled with bombs and verbal arrows that destroy. I want to show you a clip from the diner scene in Little Miss Sunshine that I think just powerfully demonstrates the power of words to tear down or to build up. Mom, how much can we spend? I would say $4. Anything under $4. Hi. You ready? Yeah, I'm going to have the uh, number five with coffee, please. All right. Uh, uh, number seven, over easy and uh, grapefruit juice. Grapefruit? Um, I would like a fruit plate. And uh, do you have chamomile? Yes. With honey, please. I would like the lumberjack and coffee and extra bacon. Extra. No, Dad, you should probably... Richard, don't start. He's going to kill himself. Well, it's his life. Thank you, Cheryl. Uh, garden salad? And you. I, I'm sorry. I, um, sorry. Take your turn. Don't apologize, Olive. It's a sign of weakness. Um, well, I want, uh, okay, okay, I know what I want. I know. Okay. Can I get the, uh, waffles and, um, I don't know what does alamodi mean? Oh, that means it comes with ice cream. Okay, alamodi. Olive for breakfast. Said four dollars. Okay, you're right. Okay, be right back. Actually, Olive, alamode uh, in French translates literally as in the fashion. A la mode. Mode is derived from Latin modus, uh, meaning do or proper measure. Frank, shut up. Richard. Olive, can I tell you a little something about ice cream? Yeah. Well, ice cream is made from cream which comes from cow's milk, and cream has a lot of fat in it. Richard. What? She's going to find out anyway, remember? What? Find out what? Well, when you eat ice cream, the fat in the ice cream becomes fat in your body. Richard, I swear to God. It's true. What? What's wrong? Nothing. Nothing's wrong. So if you eat a lot of ice cream, you might become fat, and if you don't, you're going to stay nice and skinny, sweetie. Olive, Richard is an idiot. I like a woman with meat on her bones. I don't... Uh, why is everyone so upset? No, no one's upset, honey. I, I just want you to understand. It's okay to be skinny, and it's okay to be fat if that's what you want to be. Whatever you want, it's okay. Okay, but Olive, let me ask you this. Those women in Miss America, are they skinny or are they fat? Honey? Well, 
They're skinny, I guess. Yeah. Guess they don't eat a lot of ice cream. Okay. Coffee? Grapefruits. Thank you. Camel And here's your ice cream. A la modi, right? I'll be back with your waffles in a second. Does anyone want my ice cream? Yeah, I like a little. Dwayne, Frank, Olive's not going to have her ice cream. Yeah, do you mind if I have a little? Yeah, bit? let's dig in. That looks really good. Boy, I feel sorry for anybody that doesn't want to enjoy their ice cream so early in the morning. Oh, that looks good. Yeah. You sure you don't want to have some, Olive? Those waffles are going to be awful lonely in there. Mm. <laughs> Watch this. Wait! Stop! Don't eat it all. All right, Olive. Richard. You know, the Bible says that we show compassion by the words that we say to each other. Part of that is deciding what's appropriate to tell someone and what's not. What's the effect? Does it, does it build them up? Or are you saying it just because what they're doing doesn't agree with your own particular agenda? I mean, that scene made me so mad the first time I saw it. You know, Father telling his, his little girl not to eat ice cream, she get fat. It's like, it's like he's writing the prescription order for an eating disorder, you know? But what I love is the redemptive response of the rest of the family, who in essence covers the father's sin, because their words of affirmation, their active reassurance of Olive, and sharing our ice cream helps heal that wound that her daddy dealt. Showing compassion in what we say and the way we say is part of diffusing conflict. Speak only what is helpful, Paul counsels, for building others up according to their needs so that it may benefit those who listen. Is your, is your speech characterized by compassion? And sensitivity, that's one way to keep dysfunction at bay. The other way is to actually demonstrate compassion in relationships is by what we do. Not just what we say, but how we act towards each other. First John 3.18 expands and he says, um, My children, we should love people, not only with words and talk, but by our actions and true caring. In other words, compassion isn't merely talking about love, but saying with your actions, how can I make life easier for you? What can I do that will make your life a bit easier? You know, I made that joke, you know, back there about PMS, but I was running this material by my wife, Colleen. She was like, are you kidding me? PMS? You're the one with PMS. Every Saturday night you get PMS, pre-message syndrome. (laughs) And I laugh, but it's true. (laughs) She knows that Saturday, five o'clock rolls around, like comes over me. I start thinking about Sunday and Colleen, she's like, this look comes over your face. And I'm like, it's called my game face. And she's like, you look constipated. And I start, I start thinking about our, our three services here and it's like, I check out. And now for five years, Colleen has graciously made room for my Saturday PMS. On Saturday night, she'll, she'll do the, she's like, I'll do the baths and the kids because everyone, daddy's preoccupied, sweetheart. And she'll give me the room to go over my notes or tweak the videos you guys enjoy. And on Sunday morning, she's like, I'll take the kids. She gets them dressed. She cooks them breakfast, brings them to Liquid Kids all by herself. Why? Because she's a compassionate wife. Not that it's her duty, but it's her heart. She knows it's a weakness of mine, but she wants to help. And she knows that Saturday at 6, I've got to start preparing mentally to speak it through services. And I get cranky as any, anyone. So Colleen tries to find ways that she can make life easier for me and minimize stress and strain. That's compassion. In many ways, she's the silent partner in this ministry, kind of, the, in my opinion, the unsung hero of our church. In fact, like, can we get, take a moment? My wife, Colleen, my long-suffering wife, Colleen. Sweetheart. How, how would you rate yourself on compassion and generosity of spirit? Would, you, would the people closest to you say, oh, she, he is a giving person? Give yourself a one if your favorite phrase is, how can I make life easier for me? Or a nine if you're constantly looking for ways to make life easier for the people you love. 
If you're new to our church, you need to know something compassionate, such a cornerstone value at Lickin. We teach on all of our levels, including our kids. Uh, we're learning about that right now up here, but downstairs right now in Liquid Kids, our children are learning how to put their love into action. Uh, if you're a parent, maybe you got that email this week that invited your child to bring in new socks and underwear, and you're like, what, what was that? It's, yeah, it's for the flooding victims that we're going to help as a church. And Erica and her team of teachers at Liquid Kids, they're, they're making care packages right now downstairs for some of the families displaced by last week's flooding. That's compassion, love and action. And it's supposed to permeate a spiritual family that has its commonality in Jesus Christ. There are all sorts of ways you can show you care at our church. You know, um, each week we invite you to write in any prayer requests on your connection card. Write this thing in your bulletin. We're like, any way we can pray for you. And we are so glad you do. Because it gives our staff a chance to pray for you by name and know what's going on in your life. But it's been amazing. Because we've seen this explosive growth this spring at our, our three services. We're just getting buried by prayer requests. Here are the ones from last week. There are 12 to a page. Yeah, you can see them here. They're about like 17 pages and we we're going through these this week, and we we're praying for these. We pray for every one of them. But we have the bright idea to say this week, is it just possible that some other people in this community want to help bear each other's burdens? Because that's what compassion is. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And so one of the action steps we'll ask you to consider tonight is actually being part of our fledgling prayer and care team. And this, this is an opportunity for, for those of you who aren't involved on Sundays to actually get involved during a week. Pastor Glenn is putting together a team of compassionate individuals who are simply willing to show care for people by praying for them. It's strictly confidential. It's not like, oh, now everybody sees my prayer request. No. We're going to begin removing names from some of the prayer requests. And if you're able to pray maybe like 15 minutes a week and just bring people's burdens before God, then you sign up. Perfect ministry if you have a heart for lightening people's loads. All sorts of needs, but the common denominator is prayer. Even for folks who are brand new to our church, it means the world. When they know there's a family here of people who would care enough, you take time out of your week to pray to God for me on your behalf. I, someone sent me an email. They're like, I'm blown away that you guys would do that. Are some of you willing to do that? If so, you can simply check that box on your connection card tonight. And Pastor Glenn will be in touch with you <clears throat> this week for more details. Excuse me. Great way to get involved. And we're just asking folks to do it for, for one month. Would you commit to four, four weeks just to pray for some of the new people who are taking a step back to God? Well, the final ingredient that Peter invites us to add to our list is humility. And I suspect he saved it for last because it is the hardest, in my opinion. You know, 1 Corinthians says, love is not proud. And when you take the time to pause and dissect conflicts, family conflicts, church conflicts, any kind of relational static, you discover very quickly that pride is often involved in some way. Somewhere there's pride and stubbornness. Proverbs 13.10 13, says, Pride only leads to arguments. Colleen and I are actually, um, she's Irish. Um, we both are pretty stubborn, often self-willed. And sometimes when we get into a conflict, we can be staring at each other from across the room with this, like, I am not going to make a move here attitude until you flinch. And, and what we've found is that as long as we have that kind of prideful, stubborn attitude, there is no chance at resolution, no harmony. But as soon as one of us is willing to humble ourselves, to soften our own hearts, suddenly God begins miraculously to work. <laughs> What's humility? It's being honest with my weaknesses and my failures. It's, it's not assuming I know it all or understand everything that you're even saying is being willing to admit a mistake. But I can say those four difficult words. I need your help. <laughs> Very hard words to say in our culture. To admit that someone else, you need their help and be vulnerable and take that kind of risk, that doesn't come too easy. But as we learn, the Bible says, bear one another's burdens. How can you bear someone's burdens if you don't tell them what they are? How can he bear mine if I don't share with him what I'm struggling with? Saying those words, I need your help, takes humility. 
But it also enables me to say the three hardest words, I was wrong. <laughs> for me, those are the ones that stick in my throat. It's like swallowing sawdust. <laughs> Yet it's the most essential art for relational health in the family of Christ. Proverbs 28:13 reads, Anyone who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. Most of the arguments in my family take place in the car. <laughs> We've got a Ford Explorer. We don't have a Volkswagen van. Um, but we'll get in that thing, and, and a lot of times it is my fault because I'm usually driving. I'm, I, Colleen's a, actually, let's admit that she's a better driver. But she's nice because she makes me feel good. She's like, no, you drive. Um, and so it'll be like after dinner, and we'll go to like to Target or something. And we'll be driving there, get the kids strapped in, and she'll ask me like, so, so how was your day? And I'll, and I'll start telling her. And I'm a verbal guy. So once I get going, talking, there, there is no stopping, okay? I'm just like, I don't even care where we're going. I'm telling you a story. And she'll typically kind of be distracted, like watching the, the signs. She's like, Tim, you're going you're to miss your exit. There, there, there goes Target, you know? And all I can think of like, how rude. I get like all indignant, like, you know, you, 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 you ask. And, I, and she's like, no, hon, I do want to hear how your day went, but I also want to make it to Target alive. And I'm like, forget it. Now you're criticizing my driving. And, and this one time we get going back and forth, back and forth, bickering over whose fault it was. And from the backseat comes his voice, my little girl, Chase, five years old. And she's, she says, stop it, you two. And I look in the rearview mirror. She's reading this little princess book and she's not even looking up. She goes, acting like a couple of three-year-olds. <laughs> you know. Of course, I'm like, wonder where she got that, you know? Just stinks when your kids call you on, because now not only do I have to admit to Colleen I'm wrong, I have to admit it to, you know, the five-year-old. Humility is being able to say two hardest words, forgive me. Sometimes they just stick as much as I was wrong, but they're a little easier when I remember that the only reason I'm in this family, this God's family to begin with, is that his son Jesus graced my life. And because he forgave me, I can offer forgiveness and even say, you know what, I'm sorry, I, I am in the wrong. And I can stop demanding perfection of those I'm in relationship with. Here's a secret, folks. Perfection is not going to be in your relationships. It's just not in the cards this side of life. And resting in the knowledge that part of our maturity is learning to say I'm sorry is the thing that makes true family possible. I apologize for the things I said. I was upset. I didn't really mean them. It's okay, come on. Let's go. Two fifty five. All right, everybody look for the exit, okay? How do you rate on humility? Going down the road in your bus with your family, your spouse, your friend, your co-workers, how do you rate on humility? Do you find it difficult to back down, to admit you're wrong? Give yourself a one if the words, I was wrong, haven't passed your lips since like 1971. Or give yourself a nine if you can easily ask for help, admit you're wrong, and better yet, take the initiative and do it this week in a relationship that needs mending. T would you take a look over those four qualities, folks? Just look at your own, look at your neighbors. What do you see? How are you doing? I'm not going to ask you to share your self-evaluations with anyone. That's between you and God. But you are part of God's family. And that means you have a responsibility. And it's summed up this way. Let, let's read it over again. 1 Peter 3, 8. Ready? Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. It's ironic. 
But the Apostle Peter, who God inspired to write these words, you know what he ranked? About a zero on every one of these qualities in his early days following Jesus. He was impulsive, hot-headed, and brash. In fact, in one, in one episode in Mark, he actually rebuked Jesus himself. But it was ultimately through Peter's failure that his life was turned around. Through Peter's profound dysfunction, his relational failure, and betrayal, actually, of Jesus, God finally taught him tenderness and humility. And a very imperfect man became a very important tool in God's hands. And that's hope for each one of us, folks. There's, there's no such thing as a perfect family, a perfect marriage, or a perfect church, for that matter. <laughs> I've met some of you and you're like, oh, I'm looking around for a church. You know, I say to people looking for a church, if you ever find a church that's perfect, perfect church, whatever you do, don't join it. You'll ruin it. <laughs> We're all broken people on the same bus. But thank God for grace that he's actually not finished with us yet, not by a long shot. For once we enter God's family, through simple trust in Jesus, our father makes this promise to us. He says, he who began a good work in you, will actually carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Where's God prompting you to, to grow this afternoon? As you look at those four, just pick one. Is it in the area of sympathy? To reach out to someone in brotherly love? Maybe to join the prayer and care team, put your compassion into action? Or, or maybe even to join our church family? Maybe you've been a Christian without a home for a while, and you've been reluctant to commit to a spiritual family for all those reasons we've talked about. But now you're finally ready to put down some roots. It's kind of neat because we've had uh, this month over 106 people sign up for a spring membership brunch on May 6th. That's awesome. But everyone, I, I, I email them and I tell them, I need to tell you, we're not a perfect church. And I think that's why you'll fit in. <laughs> Remember, in God's family, no, no perfect people allowed. That's why we need Jesus. That's why he gets to drive the bus. <laughs> if you've ever been on a, a road trip, you know that from time to time, the parent has to, the dad has to turn around and say, hey, knock it off back there. You guys get along. Your brother and sister... We got a long ride together. That's what 1 Peter 3 8 is all about. A reminder to us that we only need simple trust to be accepted and loved by God. But accepting and loving one another, well, that's where the real journey begins. And I hope you'll be on it with us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Um, for all you've done for us and reaching out to us. And, and you know our hearts, God. We want to grow in our love for you and one another. Um, and that's why we need your help. Um, would you please help us this week, Lord, to mature in, in these critical areas you've laid out for us in your word, in compassion, in love, in humility, so we can be of use to you and bring you pleasure. Lord, we ask for help in this in, in our families, um, in our relationships with one another. And we ask for growth this week, Lord. We ask it, you to do it in the strength and the power of your Holy Spirit. And we do it for your glory, Jesus. We want to bring you glory. We want to be more like you. So continue to teach us, Lord. In Jesus' name.